Okay. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I want to start with some general remarks which aren't about the subject directly, uh, just because it's a rare opportunity here. Um, as I was putting together this talk, I realized that I have accumulated uh, seven of these explorations of the Futuhat, almost all woven together of translations from the Futuhat around a given theme, uh, that haven't been published yet. Three or four have in the context of the, the reflective heart have been reworked into that book. But I've got, the book has come together and this, this certainly is kind of a, this one is the capstone in some ways it kind of ties together all of those. It's time to do the book now. Uh, but they haven't even appeared yet in the journal. Where's Stephen? I was just talking to him about that. So uh, this is really an illustration of one of Ibn Harvey's many points in this, uh, these translations I'll take today is that nothing moves forward in the world without talab, without uh, the demands. I mean, that we each, our demands of each other are what move us forward spiritually. Also, the terrible things we do to each other. But that's also in this <laughs> talk today. But uh, certainly that demanding uh, has been uh, from, I think it was 1992 when I first came here, 1990 when I first came to Berkeley. All of these different talks and explorations, which hopefully will, I'm due for a sabbatical in four years, so maybe it'll take until then to bring the book together. But as I was talking to Stephen, I'd like to have the book, it'd be three or four hundred pages just of these, these seven studies, but then an equal book of translations of those chapters from the first quarter of the Futuhat that are, are developed in those studies. Uh, that, that I hope those will come to, God willing, will come to, to out into fruition, out into the world. And if so, it will be thanks entirely to the generosity and the farsightedness of the members of the society who almost unbelievably, almost all of whom who I met 20 years ago when I first started frequenting these gatherings in Berkeley and Oxford are still here and, and don't look a day older than they did 20 years ago. It's so nice. You know? When you're among family, everyone stays the same age. So um, I know not all of you are members of the society or Bashara, but, but I, I do have that wonderful feeling of a family reunion whenever I come back here. And of course, uh, one of the things that I decided, uh, and speaking of this, this is about a very much interplay of our short-sighted human akla and the heart. One of those intellectual decisions I made, which sometimes causes us pain, as Ibn Arabi will go on to say long ago, was that like Ibn Abu Madian, I was never going to be like those old distinguished professors who repeated themselves continuously whenever they showed up at a gathering. I won't name names, but I saw a lot of them in my apprenticeship, and I said, I won't be like that. I'll be like Abu Madian's students. I'll bring fresh meat, new translations, new explorations each time. Well, it was a very painful thing to carry out this time. And I also have to apologize, because in lots of cases, unless you were at the original talk, uh, these things haven't gone into print, and that's, that's why I feel a bit guilty. And, and indeed, with this one, I know we'll have an occasion this afternoon to do one key passage. But frankly, almost any two lines in Arabic that I'm translating here would be the vehicles for a whole day's seminar. So when I'm reading them, you're going to have to put up with this frustration of I'll, I'll try and really focus on communicating what Ibn Arabi is saying. But all the same, what these will evoke, I hope constantly, are your own experience, corresponding experiences. And please don't sign up for my seminar if you aren't willing to say at least a little bit about what you know and can share about what Ibn Arabi is talking about. Not what you think about it, but what you actually uh, know in the sense of marifa, the marifat that 
uh, introduces each chapter almost of the uh, of the hundreds of chapters in the Futuhat. Now, uh, before again, before I, I plunge into this, I'd like to mention four sort of lessons that I'll probably put at the end of this article and then at the introduction to that book. But in each of these talks, I've let Ibn Arabi, somebody sends me the theme from the society, and I've let Ibn Arabi guide me through how he introduces and develops this theme in the course of what's usually the first quarter of the Futuhat, the Fasl Ma'arif, and sometimes the Fasl Mu'amalat. A few that I've done more recently in Berkeley, I've taken things from the end of the Futuhat, especially chapter 559, which is sort of these gems of the inner meanings of each of the chapters. But for the most part, um, this has been an extraordinary process. Every time somebody sends me a theme, I, I don't know what's going to happen. But it always is illuminating. And I think there are four lessons that, having done this over the past almost 20 years now, are very important for all of us to keep in mind. The first is the necessity of seeing Ibn Arabi's teaching holistically and in their proper context. That is, not a piecemeal, not translated bit by bit. I mean, not translated actually... Um, from the point of view of arguing a certain thesis. That's why many doctoral theses in Ibn Arabi are, are to my mind, just completely off the mark. Because if you're looking for what you understand alone in Ibn Arabi, that will, doing that kind of approach will inevitably falsely highlight it, at least for uninitiated newcomers and those who don't have access to the Arabic, either it's scriptural or it's intellectual elements, which are the more easily and more publicly familiar side of what he's saying. The flip side of that, and the second general point that we should all keep in mind, is Ibn Arabi's approach to everything can be summed up in the single word tahqiq, of which I've written uh, a good deal in a number of other studies. In fact, many of those studies you mentioned on the e-scholarship website, and, and, and if you just Google e-scholarship or go to Boston College and look for e-scholarship, that's where all these site, uh, articles are freely downloadable. There's really now a, a massive book of just material that I've translated and written about, about how to approach and understand Ibn Arabi's approach in the Futuhat. That should be another volume that I have a press for if I get the time to pull those articles together. And But taqiq means combining our understanding on the basis of our illuminating experience. So it's pointers to the ultimate reality and not a doctrine to be understood in itself as uh, our, our friend uh, Dr. Haj Yusuf was saying earlier, uh, Ibn Arabi always takes, wants our understanding to flow from what the heart gives us at each instant. And that's quite universal, and quite universal at the same time. That's a Freudian slip because I was going to say it's quite particular and concrete. Uh, the third point that flows from this are the multiple challenges of putting out reliable and useful written translations and presentations and the terrible dangers of somehow repairing the damage of bad translations. I've just finished a semester-long seminar in Islamic philosophy, and I was struck in that field, which is another area in which I've worked all my life, of how when you're trans teaching things in Islamic thought from translation, when you have inadequate translations, it's like Gresham's Law, good, bad money of driving out good. Uh, no one works in Ibn Khaldun because Rosenthal's translation, which is a huge and a monumental work, is completely oblivious to the structure of Ibn Khaldun's thoughts. So you can't even use his translation to teach, uh, teach Ibn Khaldun. And the same thing would, God forbid, be true if 
you might wonder why people who spend all their lives working in the Futahat are so slow to come out with um, translations of whole sections. I've written articles to explain that, but certainly that you don't, you, you're so often faced with a choice of either translating what you don't really understand, um, and of course, at least someone who knows Ibn Arabi well knows that they don't understand a great deal of it. Or the problem is, in the age of the internet, I get our, uh, somebody from Iran or Pakistan or wherever, about every six weeks, writing me and saying, oh, why don't we translate the whole Futuhat? And the people who are asking him the question, all I can say is, astaghfirullah. But, um, and, um, I hope they don't succeed in there. Um, at least not until they worked on it 20 or 30 years. But I know, I know this, this, but it, I really am worried now because the internet has, has created this illusion that anyone can do anything and it's kind of a bubble that, that whose bursting sometimes would take decades. Um, the fourth point, and it really brings me right back to, where is Muhammad Yusuf? There you are. <laughs> yeah. Right back to the complementarity between your talk just before on the macrocosm of the heart and now we're moving to the microcosm of the, the heart as we experience and know it is in, in one discovers constantly in Ibn Arabi the ultimate identity and complementarity of both the divine books, the book of the cosmos, or of creation, and the book of scripture and revelation, which includes the Quran and all the other revelations. And I say you discover that. That's why you'll notice whenever I do these talks or publish them, I generally start with a long discussion of what the Quran actually says about the theme in question, because it's just astonishing how at the end of the day, when you've gone through how Ibn Arabi introduces and develops this particular theme, you, you discover that, in fact, everything he says is so incredibly deeply rooted in the living reality of the words of the Quran. So to turn now to the topic, and again, this isn't actually the translations yet, I, I'd written so much on the heart, the Qalb, which is comes up many pages, many times practically at every page of the Futuhat, that rather than run the danger of repeating something that I'd written about before, I was struck, and, and again, I don't know where these ideas come from, but the, the original title, Opening the Heart, really refers not to the Qalb, but to the Sadr, uh, which again, Muhammad mentioned, as one of a number of terms in the Quran, which in some ways all have to be translated as heart, because they're different dimensions or aspects of the same spiritual reality. Um, the Sadr has, of course, the dual meaning of the, the chest or the breast, but you're not going to get anywhere in English, by, although the Quranic people, translators sometimes do these things, call it the chest or the breasts. I mean, it's a nice old biblical language, but it, believe me, when you're teaching students, you don't want to use those words. Um, it also is the foremost... Um, the, uh, the sense of what's most visible or foremost or outward of the sadara from that root. But again, it's integrally related to kalb, to sir, the inner secret or mystery, fu'ad, latifa, and other Quranic terms that, of course, Ibn Arabi and many others uh, write about and explain. But when we turn just to the heart, in fact, the, what led me to this topic was the situation I was in. I was struck by the Surat al-Insharah, alam nashrah lakasadrak, did we not? open up or release or literally almost cut open your heart to and relieve the burden that fell upon you, uh, the you being here, both, of course, the prophet and ultimately uh, the inner reality of each of us in so far as we become that 
uh, that, that cosmic insan kamal. So the Sadra, I, I'm going to say just some very quick things about it because I'm not, I can't quote the Suras, I can't explain, all this will be in the article. But the relationship between the Sadra and the Kalb, and by the way, in, in my translations, when I use hard, unless I say otherwise, it will be the Sadra. The Sadra and the Kalb are, one way of understanding the relation is just the physical relation, even though Ibn Arabi isn't talking about the physical reality, obviously the heart is inside and enclosed by the chest or the breast, so that the human, um, but it's interesting that the Quran makes it clear that we human beings are the ones who close or enclose the, the, the reality, the theophonic reality of the heart. And therefore, talking about the Sadr, it's really talking about in the Quran the interplay between the nafs and the nafs al-amara, the, the way the Sufis generally just call the nafs, the lower, um, the ego self, the bodily nature, sometimes translated the carnal, carnal self or the domineering self, and our bodily nature, which underlies the tab in, in Ibn Arabi's term, that underlies that nafs. So what is evoked in the Quran when it talks about the relation of sadr and kalb is always the relationship between the deeper dimensions of our spirit and what our ego and our nafs, I mean, it's not really the conscious ego, but our egoistic, transient material self uh, does with and and to the actual inner knowing, the marifa, the kalb. So one theme that's consistently repeated in the Quran is the constriction or the tightness, the bayuk, and the weighing down, the haraj, the, the sort of burden, the anxiety of the sadr. And, of course, the Quran repeatedly denies that God is the one imposing those states. And these are, these are physical feelings. Anybody has been through this state many, many times in life. In fact, the Sufis would often talk about moments of expansion of the Sadra and moments of contraction. And the, the expansion correction is something that we all know. Um, when uh, I don't need to go into it. If, if you if you can't figure that out, we'll we'll come back to that more in the seminar. But the quest, the fundamental question here is twofold. First, how can human beings be responsible for their own pain and suffering, which is a, um, a metaphysical theodicy question. Of course, philosophers and theologians resolve in all sorts of ways. But the how of that for Ibn Arabi cannot be separated from the why, the purpose, the ultimate divine aim in the hearts constantly going through this expansion and contraction and this closing and why people are so given to the closing and the hardening and the veiling of the heart. The why here being not why of the cause, but why of the ultimate purpose, which of course is the purification, the deepening and, and making that heart a mirror, ultimately a mirror, a theophonic mirror of all of the divine names. Of course, what you need to think of here is Rumi's image of the chickpeas in the pot, the chickpeas boiling away in the pot, which is a literal uh, version of the Quranic image of God's dying, coloring the soul through all of the fires and burning torments of what each soul goes through in the process of its learning and illumination and maturing. So again, in the Quran, human beings are the ones who close off who fold up, who hide. These are all different Arabic expressions. What is in the hearts? And so the, all of these expressions for what in relation to the, the heart is uh, in sense of kalb is called veiling or rusting. And it's human beings who imagine, yet who all sorts of non-existent things in their hearts. And of course, it's Satan or Shaitan, uh, sort of the exemplification of the nafs that whispers into the sudur, into the hearts in that sense, not into the kalb. So um, 
then the Quran speaks always of, in contrast to what human beings do with their chest and trying to do all this hiding and folding up and imagining and all, the Quran constantly evokes God as the maker, the, the, the real the, the real as the one that carries out the releasing or opening and healing. So you have these two key terms, opening or releasing, shar in sharah, and healing, shifa, of, har, of the sudur, of the hearts. So God releases and opens them in the Quran. God tests the hearts. God always knows what is in the sudur and the hearts that they contain. And of course, they, um, God's uh, clear signs, bayanat, are in the are in the illuminated uh, hearts, the door. It's God who removes the impurities or pollution from the uh, chest, from the hearts, and God places light, nur, into the opened hearts. And finally, and, and this is really the very key of Ibn Arabi, what Ibn Arabi's whole discussion, it's God who opens up hearts to surrender to peace, to Islam in its uh, Quranic sense. And the best way to understand that again is that uh, the contrast of that light which brings us into a piece of course is to notice the way that it's opposed to our natural human tendency to deny, to ankara, to cover over or reject or be vehemently disagreeing with what's happening to us, the chronic term kafara, to our denial, abba, to our refusal, our sort of toddler-like uh, anger with God. Asar, disobedience, to all of these infantile reactions that our nafs carries out to all the things that happens to it in the course of life. And of course, it's, it's taslim, surrender to peace, that is the opposite of all of those familiar uh, Quranic expressions. So now having said that, and sort of evoking the ways the Quran sets up this contrast between what we do to our hearts and their knowing and what God would like us to do and eventually brings about through suffering. Uh, I'll start, and I just go through chapter by chapter where, where Ibn Arabi takes up the Sadr in this first quarter of the, mostly the Fasl Ma'arif. Uh, the, these are the texts that Osman Yahya largely edited. Uh, uh, so it's almost a quarter of the whole Futuhat. Uh, the first place we encounter, and I'm going to be reading this as a teacher. I know how problematic reading is. I'm reading it simply because I'm actually going to be giving you primarily translations from Ibn Arabi. So there's no way to, to I'd love to stop and explain each sentence, but we'll not get beyond page two if I do that. So um, I'm going to say the first place we encounter a mention of the heart, that is of the Sadr. And again, when I speak in this lecture, I'm talking about the Sadr, unless I say otherwise, in the Futuhat, is in Ibn Arabi's fundamental discussion, which we have translated fully elsewhere in the Hertenstein uh, Tiernan volume there, of the different types and ways of human knowing that underpin the different levels of discourse interwoven throughout the rest of this text. This is in the Muqaddimah, the very beginning, the introduction to the beginning of the Futuhat. Here the Sheikh introduces the fundamental distinction between the abstract, highly fallible and unreliable knowing of the rational intellect and the inspired inner awareness, the knowledge of states, which is acquired through divine inspiration, that is immediately recognized as such by the heart or sadr. So um, you're going to have to pay attention when I put my fingers up like this. These are these indebted, quoted paragraphs. Then you must know, this is Ibn Arabi speaking, that if this, this inspired unveiling, kash, for knowing of states, seems good and beautiful to you, and you accept and have faith in it, then rejoice in that good news, fabshar. For you are necessarily experiencing an unveiling of that, even if you aren't aware of it. Because there is no other way to that. 
because the heart, the sadhra, is only delighted and pleased by that whose spiritual soundness it is absolutely sure of, while the discursive intellect has no footing here, because this is not in its domain of perception. As we shall see, Ibn Arabi returns to develop and amplify this initial practically crucial distinction throughout many of our later passages. The next time we find the Sadr is early in chapter 1 of the Futuhat, at the beginning of Ibn Arabi's famous encounter at the Kaaba with the mysterious young spiritual alter ego, the Fatah, the figure, the image of his own true divine spirit, who revealed to him everything in that immense work. There, this Fatah again evokes, in contrast with the inspired knowing of the heart, the profound illusions of those poor souls, miskin, a term that has that same term in Arabic today, who rely solely on the conclusions of their discursive intellect, imagining that it is actually leading them somewhere. Quote, the poor fellow, the miskin, imagines he is knocking and opening the door of spiritual illumination, saying, can there be in the face of this constriction and heavy burden that I still feel now anything but expansion and opening at the end of the path that he imagines? But compare that to the Quran, what the Quran says on those who are disputing without real knowing or faith. And the, the those who are disputing here is a description of a, a large group of those who are in hell. So whosoever God wills to guide, he opens up their heart to surrender to peace. But whosoever he wills to lead astray, he makes their heart constricted and weighted down. Again, this Dayak and Haraj, as if they were climbing up into the sky. It's, I don't know whether um, that image is if they were climbing up into the sky just immediately evokes what it's like to go up into a mountaintop or a very high area or, or, you know, without breathing apparatus. And now you actually have to work harder and harder at, at breathing. So whether that was familiar to Ibn Ar- to the people of the Prophet's time or not, I don't know, but it's a wonderful image, both, both in the impossibility of climbing up to the heaven, but also of this, this way in which the heart is, it gradually dies if it, if it tries to do so. For just as the divine opening of the heart only comes after the constriction, and this is the key to everything Ari says, opening only, only comes after constriction, after this so likewise, that which is sought is not attained until after traveling the spiritual path. And that, but that poor fellow was heedless and unaware of his own acquiring of what he had attained through inspiration, ilham, among those things that the people of mind and intellect falsely assume is only acquired by means of thinking and proofs. So this, what he's saying here, is a key to his inclusion of all of humanity, that it's not so much that the intellect is completely false in its conclusions and where it leads us. But as we'll see, it's because people don't realize that what's actually given us as true by the intellect is actually itself a form of ilham or divine inspiration. Ibn Arabi's reply to the young divine spirit here, rather than simply echoing his criticisms of the limitations of the intellect, provides a fascinating, as, as, as we shall see, highly significant acknowledgement of the essential interplay of all our human capacities, including both intellect and inspiration in the larger course of every human being's gradual spiritual growth and unique path of perfection. He begins by acknowledging the mysterious youth's observation that those who rely exclusively on their intellect, and here the quote begins, will be grieved and saddened when they arrive at the point from which they departed. But, Ibn Arabi adds here, they will rejoice in what they've acquired of the secret mysteries in the course of their path and to which they return. For if the messenger had not been called to the ascension, to the mirage, he would not have climbed up to the heavens, nor would he have come back down. And this journeying brought to him the presence of the angelic host and the signs of his Lord. 
these few carefully chosen words at the very beginning of these opening of these vast openings, Futuhat, themselves pointedly highlight one of the most distinctive features and orienting aims of all of Ibn Arabi's great work, his preoccupation with making clear the full universality and inclusiveness of the processes of spiritual development, learning, and illumination that unfold with miraculous detail and exactitude in every domain and level of creation. That essential quality of the Sheikh's speech is aptly acknowledged in the spirit, divine spirit youth's own immediate reaction. Uh, and it, it starts with Ibn Arabi saying, so the I hears Ibn Arabi. So when I brought up this knowing, which cannot be reached by the intellect alone, or fully actualized and perfected by understanding alone, the young man, this divine spirit, replied, You have made me here an extraordinary secret, and you have unveiled for me a fascinating reality which I did not hear from any wali, from anyone close to God, before you. Nor have I ever seen anyone for whom these realities were perfected and completed as they have been for you. Even though they are known to me, and I have the capital in there because it's the divine essence speaking, and inscribed in my essence, as I shall make clear to you through the raising of my veils and inform you about through my spiritual indications, sharati. So uh, uh, this really, of course, encapsulates Ibn Arabi's own self-image as the khatmal of many things. And uh, I hope I don't have to develop all that as well, but I just wanted to mention that. So now, moving on, in chapter 2, the heart comes up in a poem about the letter Sa'd. So the next mentioning of the opening of the heart is in chapter 2, Ibn Arabi's immense introduction to the vast spiritual science of the Arabic letters of the revealed Quran. In the course of a long poem, whose speaker is at once God, um, and a little later in the poem, the speaker says, for example, I am being in my essence, and that being which is fully realized, Mahakak, is mine, without any restrictions, since my knowledge is, in reality, absolute. So the speaker here is both God and the Arabic letter Sa'd, whose graphic written form significantly combines twinned visible representations of both the whole, that is the closed circular, and the half-opened human heart, receptive human heart. These lines could readily serve as the epigraph foreshadowing all the rest of this investigation. And uh, Dr. Haj Yusuf kindly drew a letter sod there for those who... Uh, this is be more beautiful. So <laughs> I'm going to use a smaller one because um, here it is. I think you know, it's awesome. So um, the letter sod has this circle of, of the heart, which is the universal image. And we've, you've mentioned some of these images of the heart is like a... Uh, a P, likely between the two fingers of God. And then, of course, the open half of a circle. Uh, um, again, also the letter noon has some of those same qualities. But So it's both. It's the two circles, the heart that's closed and the heart that's open. So that, uh, as always in, in Narbi science of the letters, it's the physical form of the letter that you have to understand before you can understand what he goes on to say about it. So here the letter Sa'd and God is speaking. Whatever depth there may be in the sea, the shore of the heart is already deeper. And if your heart should be constricted from knowing me, then the heart of someone other than you is even more painfully tighter. Forget the ego self, the nafs, and accept from a truthful one who, spe who speaks truthfully. And don't oppose, don't diverge from me, lest you be pained and tormented. For the heart is suspended from me. Open it, and I will release it. Iftahu ashrahu. By the way, heart here is the, is, the, is the sadr. And do that activity you've already realized. Until when, O oh you of the hardened heart, will you leave that heart of yours locked up? 
Moving on, the next mention of the Sutras in chapter 35. And there the opening poem that begins this fundamental chapter 35 of the Futuhat on the true inner knowing of that person who is actually realized, that is experienced and fully understood. Realization always has those two dimensions in Ibn Arabi. The way station of the divine breaths and its secret meanings after death. Death here is everywhere in Ibn Arabi being spiritual rebirth, being the mutukabdan tamut, die before you die, people are sleeping when they die, they awaken and so on. So this station of the divine breaths and the realization, which is that of the highest of the awliya, is the first of a number of short scattered passages where Ibn Arabi begins to evoke explicitly the distinctive experiential qualities of the opened or released heart, the sadra mashruh, and its opposite, the, the closed heart. It is no coincidence that this first stage in that depiction again focuses on the open heart's essential receptivity to whatever is brought out at each instant by the divine breaths. Receptivity, this beautiful image of the, of the well of the heart. The true servant is whoever in the state of life was with him, with him with H, capital H, with God, like his state after the death of the body and the animal spirit. And the servant is whoever in the state of being veiled from him was a light like the illumination of the earth by the sun. This, this, I've got to repeat this because it just hits you over the head. And the servant, that is the true servant, the person of the opened heart, is whoever in the state of being veiled from him, that is in this life, was already a light like the illumination of the earth by the sun. I hope we can come back to that this afternoon. For the state of death has no pretension, no dawa, no self-delusion accompanying it. Like life has such explicit and visible pretensions. So if you've already understood what we were telling you, you'll uphold in life a balance that is above a wasn, that is above both excess and deficiency. And you'll be among those who are purified by his realities, leaving no way for censure or reproach. But if you pay no attention to what we've said, you'll come to the realm of God's questioning with a heart still unopened. Again, here, throughout this, the heart is the sadr. It is surely worth noting that Ibn Arabi actually opens this chapter devoted to all these forms of divine inspiration, ilham, and guidance that are the subject of virtually all of the remaining futuhat. That is all that is brought to the opened heart by the ever-renewed divine breaths. This is one of the uh, chapters I hope to translate the soonest. By insisting on the absolute consonance between those endlessly varied illuminations and the original scriptural textual forms of naive faith, iman, in the prophetic revelations. That is to say, a pure faith uncontaminated by any individual reflection and interpretation. which pretty much rolls out about 99% of what people understand by the word faith. But again, he uses faith in this particular sense of simple acceptance without understanding, but with a kind of potential understanding uncontaminated by uh, delusive thoughts. So he says here, You must know, my brother, that the knowing of the people of God, that is the people of opened hearts, taken from spiritual experience and unveiling from Kash, completely corresponds to the form of naive faith, of iman. For everything which faith accepts corresponds to the unveiling of the people of God, since it is all reality or truth, haq, truth with capital T. For the one who reports the divine revelation, who is the prophet, is reporting what he knows on the basis of a sound unveiling. And the essences of those who know God through God, the ulama billah, have the attributes of everything whose knowing they also take from God, whatever that may be. Let me say again, the essences of those who know God through God 
have the attributes of everything whose knowing they also take from God, whatever they may be. Here again, as we find again and again throughout the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi quickly, losing my clock there, quickly returns to amplify and develop these initial remarks in ways which make it much clearer that every human being, including those who think they are relying only on their intellects, in fact is experiencing and following instances of spiritual unveiling throughout certain moments and situations of their lives. And here's the quote. Now we've just indicated for you a matter of immense significance so that you might know what the knowledge of those relying on their intellects actually goes back to and what their, where their thoughts came from. That is, and it's my explanation, that their sound ideas and thoughts are also divine inspirations, ilham, something that any scholar and scientist knows very well. This is so that it might become clear to you that sound knowledge is not ultimately given by thinking, nor by those thoughts that the intellectuals have, have affirmed. And that, in the words of a famous hadith, sound knowing is only what God casts in the heart of the knower, and it is a divine light by which God specially distinguishes whoever he wishes among his servants. And then Ibn Arabi adds, whether they be angel, messenger, prophet, friend, wali, or person of faith. So whoever has no unveiling has no real knowing. I, I love these ways. Everything you know, is just zinging. And it's, uh, so whoever has no unveiling, that whoever fails to perceive the divine breaths that fill the opened heart has no real knowing. The next time, soon thereafter, where he brings up the Sadr, uh, is in the chapter on the Jesuses and their poles and foundations. Now, one of the most characteristic unifying dimensions of the Futahat is the way that Ibn Arabi constantly moves back and forth within every chapter, virtually every chapter, between a focus on the particular perspective of concerns and perspectives of ordinary spiritual seekers on the one hand, and a corresponding reminder of the salvific perspective of the awliyaullah, the friends of God, the intermediate intermarries, of the endless pleroma of spiritual instruments and personalities who, from this world and from beyond, play their key roles at every stage of each individual, individual and every wider drama of spiritual growth, development, and transformation. Thus it should come as no surprise that the Sheikh's first explicit allusion to God's, God's activity as the healer of hearts as the Shafi'is Sudur, in the opening two Quranic verses where he's spoken of as healing the hearts, in the opening of poem of chapter 36 on the Isawiyun, pointedly directs our attention toward all those who fulfill and manifest this divine attention. This is the poem. And by, and by the way, these poems that introduce each chapter of the Futuhat are one of those things that uh, whenever we want to sort of do a complete translation, they're always one of the most challenging things to translate in the Futuhat. So everyone who brings life to his reality and heals the heart from the sickness of the veils, that one is Jesus, for us at least. There can be not, cannot be any doubt about that. Whoever brings life to his reality and heals the heart from the sickness of the veils, that one is Jesus. For us, there cannot be any doubt about that. And skipping over a few lines. So his spiritual intention, and I put an H here because uh, as even in the Quran often, who is the he speaking, uh, go back and read closely about uh, uh, none shall enter the garden until they have uh, known him or acknowledged him. So his spiritual intention, himma, his himma, flows secretly throughout the world among the Arabs and among the foreigners. Through it, their souls are brought to life, and through it, the misfortunes are taken away.
As we shall see, perhaps the most significant phrase here in terms of Immanarity's later development of the theme of the opening heart is this prefiguration here of the ultimate divine mystery, that secret hidden flowing, Sara, from the same root as Isra, traveling by night, of God's transforming loving mercy and compassion, the breaths of the all-merciful, Nafasa Rahman, that can only be grasped through the necessarily painful, necessarily painful, human dramas that make possible the opening of each constricted and heavily burdened heart. The following section, you know, we move on. The next thing that comes up with this theme of the Sadr is the chapter on I am finding, the prophet saying, I am finding and experiencing the breath of the all-merciful. The following section comes from Ibn Arabi's chapter built around the prophet's famous intimation at what was surely most outwardly the most devastating and hopeless moment of his entire calling when he had lost his wife and his strongest source of political source of Mecca and had failed in his journey to Taif. His saying at that particular point in his life, I am surely finding, ajidu, finding, experiencing directly the breath of the all-merciful, a decisive experience of illuminating grace that preceded the providential arrival of his first band of future supporters from the city of Yathrib, the future Medina. It's sort of the Gethsemane moment in the Quranic and Islamic tradition. What Imam Arabi says in this short section for each reader necessarily requires a lifetime's experience of translation into the particular corresponding realities and transforming moments of grace that are needed to bring this intensely compressed metaphysical summary to life. Here's his quote here. Now you must know that the people embodying this spiritual station of the divine breaths, which is the Afrad, the highest of the awliya, are all those among the people of God whose state was that was, before they came there, that of those who were first engulfed and surrounded by the names of divine domination and compulsion, Asma'ul Jabarutiya, throughout the entirety of his world, from its loftiest to its lowest realms that is, those who pass through every domain of hell, of Jahannam, so that they are turning to the most intense and sincere beseeching and yearning for the names of divine loving mercy and compassion. Then the name, the all-compassionate, the all-loving, Ar-Rahman, reveals itself to them, and the divine determination freely bestows the gift of that reality of loving mercy upon them. But notice the condition for that revelation. Thus the effects of all the names of divine compulsion are erased from them so that the place of their heart is expanded in sharah to hold the breaths of the all-compassionate. Thus their heart is opened up. The divine breath circulates through it and the spirit of life travels secretly through it. It is typical of Ibn Arabi's approach that he immediately follows this intensely compressed evocation, this culminating spiritual illumination and its horrific conditions, I might add, with an equally intense warning about the all-too-familiar spiritual dangers of pretense of self-delusion of da'wah in the spiritual domain. Uh, and, and by the way, da'wah has the double sense. I, I better say this. It's not just self-delusion. Oh, that's the way the Sufis use it. It's also about carrying a legal case to God, arguing with God, and the, the best dramatization. This is like the theme of every poem of Hafez, this da'wah of the nafs, uh, both its pretensions and the arguments that they that keep the soul from experience, Islam or Taslim. But don't delude yourself. Okay, so whoever has this spiritual state and really knows it by direct experience, by tasting within their self, is among the adepts of this lofty spiritual station. 
But don't delude yourself, yes. For every human being knows his own inner state, and it is of no use to you at all to present yourself to the people as having a spiritual level that you don't actually possess. So now I have given you this cautionary advice and explained this to you according to the path of the folk of God. And the calm here is, uh, refers back to this is the, the, an expression drawn from the Quran. I, I, I don't like any translation because it doesn't give you this calm. The Quran says, we shall in the future after the prophet bring to you this calm, this people who... Uh, and then it goes on in three long ayahs to describe the qualities of the awliyaullah, the friends of God who are always present, who come after the prophets to continue to bring humanity back to its uh, ultimate destination. So, folk, as, as Shittik translates, I'll follow him here, just doesn't get it. So don't be among the ignorant ones regarding what we've informed you about regarding this. And this is a chronic thing. And don't and worship and serve your Lord until there comes to you. Sorry, misspelling. There comes to you the certainty, al yakin, of the opening of the heart. Um, I'm going to very quickly. And next time it comes up, the Sadr is in chapter 68 and the inner secrets of purification, in particular about rinsing the nose and inhaling water. Then, which Ibn Arabi takes as a symbol for overcoming all the forms of pride, of self-idolatry, of ujb and, and dawah, and becoming a true servant. Purification of the tongue and heart. The discussion here is pretty scattered and, and doesn't zing in like some of the others, so I'll pass over that. Move on to chapter 69 and three un- overwhelming, really, uh, passages on the, on the Sadr here. And the inner secrets, our inner knowing of the inner secrets, the mysteries, the asar of prayer. Significantly enough, Ibn Arabi's first discussion of the opening of the heart in his immense chapter 69 on our knowing of the secret mysteries of the ritual <coughs> prayer comes up in connection with a repeated invocation of the divine names, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, the all-compassionate, the all-merciful, during the recitation of the Fatiha that recurs throughout each cycle of the daily ritual prayers of Salat. What is striking here is the Sheikh's first pointed reminder that most of those reciting these formulae have only an illusory and dangerously deficient or partial notion of the actual divine realities and their manifestations underlying those central divine names a point that he develops at much greater length, only a few line later, lines later in this same chapter uh, in the uh, section that I'll use for the seminar, and hopefully we'll get through that this morning. Ibn Arabi's elaborating here a famous divine saying, a hadith, in which God replies to the servant's recitation of these particular names. The servant says, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, and God says, my servant was praising me. But the sheikh immediately adds, God didn't just say what, didn't say, just what it was that the servant was praising him for. And this is because the ordinary person, Al-Ami, only recognizes as divine compassion for him, as divine Rahma for us, whatever happens to match up to his. You'll notice that I use his to translate the uh, negative uh, passages in the Futuhat, and when it's positive, I use there. I, you may not notice that. I wanted to point that out. I hope it, hope it agrees with everyone here. I think, although the nafs is feminine in Arabic, I figure it's a pretty nafs, masculine quality. So I'm just you know, doing that. So that's because the ordinary person only recognizes divine compassion for him. Whatever happens to match up to his, and this is my application, immediate psychic aims, that is the aims of his nafs, even if that supposed act of mercy actually harms him or doesn't correspond to his true nature, or even if it contains the seeds of his tormenting, tormenting punishment. I, I hope 
you can add a, a, a dozen illustrations every day of our taking as, as mercy, as Rahma, what in, in fact is, um, leads to the exact opposite. But the true spiritual knower is not like that. For surely the divine compassion and loving mercy may come to the servant in an abhorrent form, such as the necessity for the sick person of drinking or eating disgusting or foul-smelling medicine. But the healing in that is hidden. And again, we could spend a whole seminar on what the forms of God's disgusting or foul-smelling medicine really are. <laughs> um, chemotherapy. Okay. Uh, the broader, the divine chemotherapy. The broader cosmic and human significance of this observation for the opening of the heart is soon carefully outlined a short while later in the course of Imanari's explanation of the deeper experiential meanings for the true knower of the same famous divine saying describing how God participates and responds to each stage of the servant's recitation of the Fatah. In this section, he begins by asking, what is really intended by the verse Madiki Yalmedin, ruler of the day or holder or possessor of the day of judgment? And why is that verse of judgment immediately preceded by the double evocation earlier in the Fatah of God as the all-loving, the all-compassionate, ar-Rahman, ar-Rahim? Ordinarily, of course, People to tend to project this reality of God's ultimate right judgment or religion, Dean has both senses, and infinite compassion into an imagined and distant eschatological future. And I have to add here, I have all the materials, uh, put a few of them at the end of the reflective heart of, a, of an immense book where I've translated the eschatological chapters of the Futuhat. I, I have the translations, I just again need the time to kind of pull it all together. And I gave a series of lectures in Paris, which will be the introduction to that volume. So what Ibn Arbi says here is greatly amplified by his discussions of Jahannam and its true realities in those chapters which uh, precede yeah, which I, I think precede these, uh, this chapter on prayer, so his readers would understand exactly what he's alluding to here. But whenever the true knower says, ruler of the day of right judgment, he does not restrict, the, the knower does not restrict that day of judgment to the other life, al akhirah. For he sees, he sees, as uh, in all of its complexity, as, as Muhammad was saying earlier, that the all-loving and the all-compassionate are not separated from the ruler of the day of judgment, since that day of the eschatological return is only an attribute, sifa, the, the day of the 50,000 years, of both of those divine realities. For the recompense, the jaza, which is both used in the Quran for both negative, what we see as negative and positive consequences of our actions of divine judgment, is in both this lower life, dunya, and the other, al-akhirah. And that is why he manifested what he prescribed regarding the upholding of the divine sanctions, ikamat al-hudud. And this is a quote in the Quran, to make manifest the corruption in the dry land and the sea through what the hands that his actions of people acquire bring upon themselves so that he might cause them to taste some of what they have done in order that they might return. Now this particular eye of the Quran, again, when all of these articles are brought together, it will be clear that he understands the dry land to be the realm of our actions, of our Afal in that sense, and the sea to be the realm of our psychic and spiritual actions. So, and the corruption here, of course, is those times we get it wrong when we when we fail to to follow the divine breaths. And it, of course, it's through our tasting of what happens when we 
both in both those domains of action. And believe me, the sea is so infinitely greater than the earth um, that, uh, of course, that's the difference sometimes between how people read the Futuhat, that then it's the tasting of their consequences that precisely leads us back ultimately to the return, the key to all of these passages. So, okay, do you want it just 45 minutes then? Well, we, we have another speaker at 12. Okay, but uh, I started a quarter after. <laughs> so so I, I would uh, suggest that uh, you give me an hour at least as, as the first one had. So um, We're not going to get done anyway, but at least we'll get to the seminar this afternoon. Um, okay, it's both in the slower life and the other. That is why he manifested what he prescribed regarding the upholding of the lines. Okay. Uh, for this process of transformation is what is the very essence ein, of the recompense. So the, the recompense isn't something that comes after creation. It is built into creation and our lives. So the day of this lower life is also a day of recompense. It's what he other, elsewhere calls it, okiamata sukhara, the, the, from our perspective, the individual day of judgment. And of course the whole is okiamata sukhara, kubra. And God is the ruler of the day of right judgment in both those senses. Hence the true knower. This is the passage that we'll go through, but I want to finish it at least in the seminar, so at least those who don't come will understand what we're talking about. Hence the true knower sees that the atonements or reparations or expiations, the word here is kafarat, and I, I don't have time to explain all that. We can talk about that in the seminar and explain a little more, are secretly flowing throughout this lower life um, with do adjustments, you could say, since the true knower sees that karma is secretly flowing throughout this lower life. So the fully human being, the insan, in the abode of this lower life, of dunya, is not exempt from that which constricts his heart and causes him pain, both of the senses and of the intelligence of spirits. So there's pain of both the senses and the spirit of the akl. Not even from such apparently small things as the bite of a flea or stumbling and tripping. In other words, there are no accidents. Uh, long before Freud. But those pains are bounded and limited in time, or muwakat, while God's loving compassion, his rahma, may he be exalted, is not limited in time. Because his loving compassion encompasses everything. Quran, famous Quran verse here. So some of that divine love and compassion is attained and manifested by way of his freely bestowed grace, his imtinan, in which the source of our partaking in that compassion is his grace, that is, by his grace alone, not by the results of our action. While some of that manifest compassion occurs by way of divine self-obligation, as in his saying again in the Quran, your loyally provider, your Rab, has written, ordained upon himself, loving compassion. And it is saying to Moses and his companions in other famous verse of the Quran, then I shall write and ordain it, uh, Rahma. So the ordinary people, ordinary people are taking all their experience of that divine compassion, what they can only recognize as compassion, as a recompense. While in fact it comes upon some of the responsible creatures, the mukallaf, and that's all of us, simply through God's freely bestowed grace, however, in fact, undeserving they may be. So understand this. In other words, we have to begin to perceive the difference between the universality of God's grace and love and the two forms of that which is just bestowed freely upon everyone and then those particular forms which begin to flow from our proper response to Arahim as opposed to Arahan, the, the proper response which carries us back to become ourselves the vessels of Rahma, the Rahimun. Therefore, every pain in this life and the other life 
is an expiation, an atonement, a kafara for certain restricted, time-limited things, inner and outer actions, that have already happened. Let me repeat that. Therefore, every pain, and the term alam is, is a term that's used here and in the Quran for what people imagine to be going to happen to us some other time, in this life and in the other life, is an expiation and atonement, a kafara, for certain restricted, time-limited things in or in outer actions that have already happened. And I hope we'll come out in discussion, this opens up the framework of who we are in ways that this is as open as you'll ever find a Muslim writer talking about these realities. And that resulting pain is a recompense for whoever is pained by it, whether they are young or old, on the condition that they strive to understand the expiating meaning, purpose, and context. Now this on the condition that they strive to understand the expiating meaning, purpose, and context of that pain. All of that is the chronic expression to aqlo. So it's not suffering and pain that is liberating. It's our everything that brings us ultimately to open our hearts to the divine divine revelation of what we were to learn through what that pain brings us to. So that's what we need to be talking about in the seminar. It's just looking at how what happens when we're put in situations of apparently impossible suffering and how those gradually lead to the opening of the heart. Uh, not by, and so that, that, that recompense is only a recompense for those who actually understand it, for no one really grasps or perceives this particular spiritual perception except for the person to whom that per, inner purpose is unveiled. And here again, don't generalize about this. Don't generalize about it. One has, can only understand one's own particular pains, sufferings. Hence the six infinite. And what follows now here, Ibn Arabi is going to speak of the infant and the young person and the older person as metaphors for all of the different kinds of souls are in this university or school of life, from the elementary grades to the, to the middle school, to the high school, to the university and beyond. Uh, those who even become instructors and teachers in the school of life. Hence the sick infant, which is where he starts, doesn't really understand the deeper meaning of its pain, although it does sense it. And that, that just all of us, whenever we're in that state, we're sick infants. Except that the infant's father and mother and others like them, the rahimun in, among the awliya, whether they love the infant or not, are themselves pained and seek to understand that pain of the infant because of the ills which they see besetting that infant. So that pain becomes an expiation and atonement for those who do understand that pain. And again, we'll say more about that this afternoon, but notice here there's the pain and suffering of each individual in the world, but what transforms people into the higher spiritual stages is their taking on and experiencing fully the passion of all of humanity throughout all of history and through all the suffering creatures throughout all time to become a bodhisattva in, in the language of another tradition. Thus, when the person who understands the meaning of that suffering thereby increases their loving compassion, their tarahum, for the one who is in the pain, then they become rewarded. That is the the person who feels and understands the pain of others through their own expiation and atonement. That is because, as an Arabic proverb puts it, every moist heart is a divine reward. Actually, it's moist liver, but again, liver is one of those terms we don't translate in Arabic. Um, 
brings a different set of images. So every moist heart, as Hibinari says, every heart is moist because this is the home of our blood. And blood is warm and moist, the natural principle of life. In other words, Rahma is the intrinsic character of, of our compassion. Now as for the spiritually young person, that is the next stage, if they seek to understand the spiritual cause of their being pained and seek to turn away from and strictly avoid the immediate causes that necessitated that pain, then that person will have an atonement or expiation through that act of transforming understanding and repentance for their own previous actions, which gave rise to pain in others, whether that other be an animal or another individual of their own species, and whether that pain be caused by their refusing something their mother or father, that is God, had asked them to do, or anyone else, or whether it be due to their refusing to do something someone else asked of them. Here he's evoking Hakullah and Hakunas, our duties towards God and our duties towards all the other creatures. So that the person who asks them is pained because that young person failed to fulfill their request. So in this latter case, if that young person is feeling pain, that pain appears in them as an atonement corresponding to that pain which they caused to that person who had requested something from them by refusing to fulfill what that person had implored of them. And here Ibn Arabi is alluding to his understanding of what he calls the famous Hadith of Jahannam, the, the Hadith Qudsi of I was sick and you didn't doesn't visit me, I was hungry, you didn't give me to feed me, I was thirsty, and you didn't give me to drink. Or that person being pained may have harmed another animal, such as throwing rocks at a dog, or killing a flea, or a louse, or stepping on an ant and killing it, or whatever else they may have done, whether intentionally or unintentionally, as whether consciously or unconsciously, it doesn't matter as far as the laws of this expiation. For the secret mystery, the sir of this matter, is strange and marvelous, ajib, flowing secretly through all the existent things, through all of Kaum, through all the Majudat, so much so that human beings may be pained in their heart constricted by the very existence of clouds. That pain of the heart's constriction is an atonement for things one has done. And by the way, Notice, not only do we complain about the weather when it's cloudy, but they're, they're, this has rich depths because clouds are what brings rain, which what brings divine mercy throughout the Quran and throughout the Hadith, the water of divine compassion and grace. It brings much needed shade. And in a number of key Hadith, which you'll find in the reflective heart, the clouds symbolize all the distractions and attachments that stand between the divine sun and its moon-like theophanies in the unclouded or unveiled heart. So that pain of the heart's constriction is an atonement for things whether done, one is done, whether one has forgotten them or actually knows what they are. All of this is directly seen by the people of unveiling as the ongoing, universally present verification and realization, taqiq, of his saying, ruler of the right day of right judgment. I'm going to stop there. I have about 15 minutes more of translations that really take this on through uh, equally dense um, and uh, powerful evocations of this opening of the heart up to chapter, the beginning of the next fossil of the Quran, to Tawbah. And uh, let me, perhaps I should just say, because the first word of the poem of the chapter in Tawbah, which inaugurates Ibn Arabi's step-by-step understanding of the spiritual path, following the names from Kushayri, but not else from, much else from Kushayri's Risala, the first line of that, I think it really turns us completely into the practice of this opening. And there he says, Itraf, and uh, Itraf is... Well, we could come into that into the seminar this afternoon. The Taraf is acknowledgement, awareness, confession. Uh, I said it might be more literally translated as intensive, unavoidable self-knowing. 
extensive, unavoidable self-knowing. For every realized seeker, Mohakik, is the place of true turning. And through it, the true God, Allah al-Haq, opens up the heart. Thank you. Thank you.